is everybody today? Very good, very good. I am glad to see you here, um, especially on this holiday weekend, July 4th weekend. Uh, my name is Orlando. For those of you who don't know me, if this is your first time here, welcome to Webster Baptist. We appreciate you being here and hope that you find uh, a church that is welcoming and loving. And know that we're not perfect, uh, but we do love the Lord and we want to welcome you here with us to love the Lord. Um, today we are going to talk about Noah's Ark. Um, and I'm going to give us some truths out of Noah's Ark that I hope will uh, guide us along in our walk with God, uh, be a little bit more than just a children's story. Uh, have you ever stopped to just consider the truths that are present in the narrative of the ark and the flood? Uh, as I said, that this is more than just a cartoon caricature for our kids. Um, we expect that our kids are going to hear about Noah and the flood during Sunday school classes, Sunday morning classes. There's going to be pictures of cute giraffes and lions, etc., going onto the ark two by two with big, beautiful eyes and everything, so they're nice and soft for the kids to enjoy. There's, there's even cute books that we can read with our children at night to help them understand this story. Um, our our uh, uh, babies, we can get mobiles for them, put pictures up, up on the wall in the nursery, all in an effort to let our kids see the story of Noah and the ark. But yet there are many, many deep truths in this story of Noah and the ark and the flood that apply to us as adults. Even though we tend to relegate the story of Noah and the flood to a children's story, and neglect the important truths God has preferred, pre, excuse me, preserved for each and every single one of us. And before we jump into this, I would like to just go ahead and open in prayer. Calm my nerves a little bit. If you guys have ever been up here, it is quite nerve-wracking. Emily, great job. Um, but um, yeah, there you are. It is quite nerve-wracking up here. So let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you so very much for today. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the beautiful weather we woke up to. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these people who are here to worship and to learn more about you. Father, I just pray that this morning uh, you will have me step back, Lord, and that you will speak through me. Allow us to hear uh, what your spirit wants us to hear, to draw us closer to you, to understand you more, uh, the purpose that you have us here for. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Up until now in Genesis, we're not really very far. As, as a matter of fact, Mike read from Genesis chapter 6. Uh, so up until this point, there's actually been a lot that has already happened here in the earth. Uh, God has created everything that we know about, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot we don't know about uh, that God has created. God pronounced that the penalty for sinning against him is death. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God had given Adam and Eve one command, Do not eat of this tree. I've given you everything else. But in this one thing, you must obey me. If you don't, the result of that sin will be your death, eternal separation from me. We know that as that story goes on, Adam and Eve were both tempted by the serpent and did sin against God, being thrown out from the garden and experiencing that death that God's told them about. Shortly thereafter, we know that Adam and Eve they uh, began to have children. Cain killed his brother Abel over offerings. And, and truly, it was more about jealousy uh, over his offerings and insufficiency of offerings to God. But Cain killed his brother Abel. And then after that, Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And we are told that through Seth and his descendants, we get to meet Noah. In Genesis 6, we see that sin again has overtaken the world, if you look at Genesis 6-5, the beginning of what we 
uh, we're reading here, it said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. How quickly, left to our own devices, do we fall away from God? And I wonder if we were to stop and examine our lives, our individual lives, what God might say about Orlando. Is he wicked? Is it my every intention and thought of my heart only evil continually? What would God say about your heart and where you are in your walk with him? In verses 6 through 7, here in chapter 6, we then see God decide to destroy the earth and all of its inhabitants due to that sin. So today, we're going to look at these verses. We're going to push forward through Genesis chapter 7, 8, and part of 9 as well. I want to encourage you. We're not going to read all of that here this morning just because of time. But I want to encourage you to go home and read this account uh, read what God has done with Noah in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 and beyond and understand what God is saying. We're going to talk about four main points this morning. Um, and the first point that we're going to talk about in order for us to be able to understand the truths in this narrative, we have to believe and know that this narrative is true and actual history. It is not just a cute children's story. Noah and the Ark is more than just a child's story with cutesy animal characters and a few drops of rain thrown in for good measure. The space dedicated to Noah and the flood here in Genesis is more than God allotted for the creation account. Ought to tell us a little bit of the importance here. Four of the first nine chapters are dedicated to Noah, his family, and the flood. However, just because God has given us all of this space and, and is telling us the importance of the flood narrative here, not everyone believes the truths presented in this narrative. Many skeptics and unbelievers immediately point to Noah and the flood with presentations of errors and inaccuracies at best and outright lies at worst. For instance, in 1879... The American agnostic Robert Ingersoll penned his infamous book titled Some Mistakes of Moses. Regarding Noah's Ark and the Flood, he wrote, Volumes might be written upon the infinite absurdity of this most incredible, wicked and foolish of all fables contained in that repository of the impossible called the Bible. To me, it is a matter of amazement that it ever was for a moment believed by any intelligent human being. In more recent times, 1983, evolutionist Douglas Fudiyama asked, can you believe that any grown man or woman with the slightest knowledge of biology, geology, physics, or any science at all, not to speak of plain and simple common sense, can, can conceivably believe this, talking about the story of the flood. In that same year, skeptic Dennis McKenzie the one-time editor of the journal Biblical Errancy, touted as the only national periodical focusing on biblical errors, argued that there is a large number of contradictions between biblical verses with respect to what occurred in the flood narrative. He goes on to allege that there exists a great number of difficulties, impossibilities, and unanswered questions accompanying the biblical account. Just because there are people who are out there and doubt what God says in his word does not mean that it is not real, nor that it did not happen. As believers, we can't pick and choose what is real or what is truth in the Bible and discard the rest. If there is any one part of this word that is false, then the entire thing becomes false. And we actually talked about this in a message that I did, I don't know, two, three, four times ago, where we talked about the accuracy and the truthfulness of God's word. If there is one part that is in error, then the entire book must be declared 
in error. So we're going to take a look at some things that prove the accuracy and the historical aspect of Noah's flood. If we look at biblical sources, and I'm going to specifically focus on New Testament authors right now, but many New Testament authors reference Noah and the flood as biblical truth. For instance, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, speaking about Jesus. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Despite God telling Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth, giving him 120 years to build an ark, Noah having the opportunity to witness in the world about what was coming and the coming destruction of the earth and the salvation offered by God in the ark. People still denied it. Up until that moment, it started to rain, and then they were knocking on the door going, hey, let me in. That is what the coming of Jesus Christ is going to be like. We can be out there today. We are out there today declaring the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can see it right here in America, right here in North Carolina, right here in Jackson County, right here in Silva, that people are saying, stop the foolishness. How can you believe that? But one day they will believe when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes back. They'll be like, open the door, let me in. It's going to happen just like that. Luke has a very similar account in chapter 17, verses 26 through 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. The author of Hebrews, whoever that might have been, in chapter 11, verse 7, says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then Peter, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Here again, describing Noah and the eight people, his sons and their wives, being saved on the ark. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. When we look at the New Testament authors and their view of the uh, flood account, they believed that it was actual history. They took God at his word and understood Noah to be a real person, his sons to be real individual with their wives, and he built a real ark, put his family and the animals and two by two, the cute little pictures that we see into that ark. God sealed it up and then brought the rains, opened the earth up and flooded the entire earth. There was no doubt in their mind that this was a real account. But what about extra-biblical evidence? What about things we see outside? Well, if you look, there are tons of flood stories across the globe. One of the most famous is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a long poem that describes a divine warning about a coming flood. A man is chosen to build a boat. Animals are gathered. A single door opens into the boat. Heavy rains fall, the man sends out a dove and a raven, the boat lands on a mountain, the, the man offers sacrifices in thanksgiving. Now the question is, which came first, this poem or Noah's narrative account? Did he just plagiarize this Babylonian account of a flood? There are many others accounts of floods that we see from Australia to Asia, Hawaii, the ancient Near East, South America, Russia, and even Native Americans here in our hometown, the Cherokee, have a story of a flood 
as well. Among all the accounts that you read, some of them have different parts. Some of them don't have everything that the biblical narrative have. But there was a corrupt world, a boat built to save a family with animals gathered to be on that boat. The world changed by the waters, even some of them having a bird flying out to determine if the waters had receded. They are all very similar in the overall context of the story. The world was destroyed by this flood. So how do we as believers reconcile the similarities of these stories and even their differences with the biblical recording of the flood? Well, if we go back in time and we look at what happened immediately after the flood, we have the Tower of Babel. Now understand that up until this point, most history was given from generation to generation orally. They would sit around fires at night, and the elder generations, those of us who have gray hair, would tell our kids the stories that God has done. That's why all throughout the Old Testament we hear God say, and this shall be a remembrance to you, make sure that you tell your kids what I have done. Put these rocks together so that way every time that you can walk by them, you can tell your children what I have done for you in this place. We were supposed to tell the next generation the story of what was going on. Well, then we get the Tower of Babel. Man in the Bible wants to build this tower and become more like God in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, it says the whole earth had one language and the same words. We didn't have to worry about not understanding each other. We didn't have to worry about whether we knew English and Spanish and Taiwanese or Cambodian, whatever. Right? we all could understand each other and talk to one another and share this story of Noah and the flood because we all spoke the same language. And the elders were there that if there was something that was wrong, just say, huh, that's not right. You need to make sure you get this correct. Because that was important if we were going to understand God's truths. Written history began around this same time. And I asked myself, why? Why would we all of a sudden go from a verbal history to a written history? Well, imagine being dispersed across the globe, speaking a new language, and you sitting here going, this is important enough for me to preserve. And so in your new language, you begin writing down the history that God has given you, not knowing what might come again in the future. Would your language potentially be confused again? Would you be able to even understand what you had just written? And then we see in Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, that God confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. And that's where we get different nationalities and languages and things that we see today. The individuals went from the Tower of Babel, they collected with their language groups, they went off and some of the Asian countries got together and we started seeing dark straight hair and, and, and light complexion skin. We had people go to Africa and the dominant traits, if you study science, began to uh, uh, come up through the ancestors of these individuals and they started having dark skin, darker hair, darker eyes. People that started coming up into what we know of now as today, Greece and Rome, etc., had lighter skin, lighter hair, etc., Ladies and gentlemen, that's how we can explain all the differences between nationalities. It's just scientific fact that dominant traits will present themselves, and every generation after that will carry those dominant traits. The people of the world would have taken with them from the Tower of Babel the historical narrative of the flood as they remembered it, as they found new homes and communities across the continents. They would have begun writing these narratives down as a record of their ancestral history, hence the many written records of a global flood. So just looking at it from a scientific standpoint, using the Bible as our foundation, as believers, that's what we have to do. Look at the Bible as our foundation, use the Bible as our foundation, and look through that lens it is easily explained how we can see flood narratives all over the world. But what about the geological evidence? And guys, I'm just going to scratch the surface with all of this. Among the archaeology community, there is zero doubt that a global flood happened at the same time around the world. Even here, 
In Jackson and Macon County, there is plenty of geological evidence for a global flood. I, I've given tours uh, for uh, Highlands excursions up in Highlands. Uh, and one of the things that we do is we take people around to different sites and where possible, we like to share the gospel and share things about the flood because these mountains are full of this type of evidence. Well, one of the places that we will take individuals is up to Sunset and Sunrise Rock, uh, which overlooks Highlands uh, to the west. And then you can look back to the east down into South Carolina. On the east side, Sunrise Rock, there is a huge boulder just perched on top of the mountain. There's no place it could have fallen from. There's nothing that it's attached to. As a matter of fact, if you look under it, there is soil under that rock. It's not just resting on rock bed or anything like that. Well, I had an archeologist with me on a tour one day, a couple years ago, and I asked him, I said, what are your thoughts about this rock and how it got here? And he asked me, he said, do people on this excursion deny that a flood actually happened. I was like, oh, all the time. He's like, no, in the archeology span community, there is zero doubt of a global flood. He was like, there's only one way that this boulder, this rock could have gotten here, weighing what it does, its size, et cetera. And he stopped and he pointed out to the east. He said, as North America and Africa slammed into each other, the waters of the Atlantic Ocean would have washed over this area. The mountains would have been lifted up at the same time, and this Boulder, what weighs thousands of pounds to us, would have been a tiny pebble in the volume and the force of the water that was washing the dirt away over the mountains that we live in here. And he's like, as the waters receded, this boulder would have been set right here as a reminder that the Atlantic Ocean at one point ran over these mountains. I loved hearing that. It's awesome to get confirmation outside of what we can look at in the Bible and things that we read and understand that from actual scientists, they see and believe the same thing too. The hydraulic pressure that would have lifted that, that would have just been a little tiny grain of sand in all that hydraulic pressure. Many geologists, not all of them by any means, but many geologists agree that approximately 70% to 90% of the layers of rock covering the Earth's mantle were laid one layer at a time during the flood. And in those layers of rock, we can find fossil evidence of different types of animals. You can even see footprints as they run one direction. The water is chasing them that way. And then you see them coming back in another layer of rock going another direction. It wasn't thousands or millions of years between each layer of rock. As a matter of fact, if you go out and look at Mount St. Helens in Washington, you can see that it happens in a matter of minutes and hours. Canyons like the Grand Canyon being dug in a matter of hours over three days because of an eruption from one volcano. Imagine what God could do with the velocity of water flowing over the earth as he opened the waters of the deep for the first time during the flood. The main point of this, and this is going to be my first point here if you're writing anything down, evidence points to the biblical account of Noah and the flood as being an actual historical event. And this actual historical event has been preserved for us in the book of Genesis by the writings of Mo uh, Moses. Now, I want to jump into this story real quick and go over three points and three promises. We're going to go over the justification, sanctification, and glorification that we see in the story of the flood. The first promise that we get from God is justification. In Genesis 6, chapter 5 through 13, we are told that the earth is again corrupt and God, destroy, God decides to destroy his creation and begin again with Noah's family. We're told that Noah was a righteous man, blameless, and walked with God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. God was returning the earth to its water-covered state, that we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. There it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. God once again was covering the earth with water. From there, God created the perfect version of the planet that we currently live on. From the beginning, God declared that the penalty for sinning against Him is 
death. Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we know in the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we are told that the wages of sin is death. There's no escaping it. The corruption found in the world required the world to die. However, God always provides a way to be in relationship with him, a gift. Romans 6.23 goes on after saying, for the wages of sin is death, but, and oh, what a great but that is. We, we really need to stop and understand, for the wages of sin is death. That is not the end all, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Genesis, God provided a way for Noah and his family to be saved, an ark. Noah did not know what an ark was. He had to trust the instructions God gave him and build something that had never been built before. He had to trust that when God said it's going to rain, to know what rain was, what a flood was, etc., once the ark was built and Noah and his family, along with the animals from all over the world, were safe on the ark, God closed the door, sealing everyone in, keeping them safe from the destruction that would take place. They literally abided in God's provision for safety and in God's eyes were justified from their sins. They were safe and saved from the catastrophic death coming to the world, as uh, written in Genesis chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. So what is justification? It is God's declaration that man is righteous due to his faith in God and what Jesus has done, or in the case of Noah, what Jesus will do. It is God providing safety from the penalty of our sins due to our faith in him. Genesis 6, 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that Noah walked with God. God declared that. God declared Noah righteous and right with him. Therefore, even though Noah and his family were sinners, just like me and just like you, they had been justified in God's eyes due to their faith in him. God provided Noah and his family safety from the penalty of death inside the ark. And when you look at Romans chapter 1, Verses, uh, sorry, through chapter 5, God's declaration of the righteous, their faith, and their salvation can be seen there. Conversely, we also see the unrighteous. The key point here for justification, God and God alone justifies the sinner through their faith saved from the penalty of death. It's penalty of sin, which is death. So God and God alone justifies the sinner. The next promise that we see is sanctification. Once Noah was declared righteous and entered the ark, life was not easy. Just because we get saved, God does not provide, uh, promise us a rose garden. God told Noah, I'm going to save you if you will build this ark and you will go inside, I'm going to save you. But guess what? Something happened. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters of the deep opened up. The earth as we know it began to transform. The continents began to move. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but little earthquakes that we have cause big tsunamis and can destroy coastal lands like that. And Noah was in a boat with all this happening underneath him in the water. I can only imagine the fear that he and his family must have experienced as they saw what was going on through the tiny windows in the top of the ark. That's what we're experiencing. If you have been saved, if you have been justified in the sight of God, we were not promised an easy life. Rather, we're told that it's probably going to be a little bit difficult. The ark would have been tossed and its occupants would have uh, felt their death was imminent on the rough waves created by the upheaval of the earth and the water below. Noah was declared righteous, however. The storms raging around him, sanctifying him, 
setting him apart for God's purpose. And so what is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of setting someone or something apart for God's special use and purpose to become more like Jesus. Once you are saved, you are not promised a life of calm waters. Rather, we are told time after time that as we become more like Christ, our lives will be probably become more difficult. Noah and his family were tossed and turned in a vessel provided by God for their safety. With our lives, we are tossed and turned in a vessel, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, God's free gift to us, despite our sinful lives. God had a special purpose for Noah, to re-inhabit and populate the earth with descendants who would understand how to walk righteously before God. God has a special purpose for us today, too. Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, so that all of us can worship God. Our special purpose, the reason God is sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus every day, is to be used to spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. To be on mission all the time is to enjoy the sanctification God provides. We can only do that when we understand Christ and are more like him on a daily basis. Noah was to use his sanctification to spread the good news of God's redemption and saving grace to a new world as we are today. The key point here, God sanctifies us, makes us more like Christ, so we can take the gospel to a sinful and dying world. My final point, we're almost done here. God promises us glorification. At the end of Noah's journey in the ark, God provides a promise. That he would never destroy the earth by water again, as seen in Genesis 9, chapter 13 and 15. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. That's the promise we tend to focus on. But this is not the promise we receive when we receive the grace and mercy provided by God's free gift of salvation through Jesus. Rather, we see God's purpose for justification and sanctification in Genesis 9, chapter 20. After Noah and all of his family leave the ark to enjoy the new earth that God has provided. What did Noah do? He built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled, he smelled a pleasing aroma. This idea of an aroma can be found 16 times alone in the book of Leviticus to describe the importance of aroma to sacrifice to God. This sacrifice, if we go back into Romans 6.23, for, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, is a forward-looking statement about the sacrifice, the pleasing aroma that Jesus would make on the cross at Calvary. In Genesis, we see that pleasing aroma, the coming sacrifice of Jesus, the final shedding of blood for our sins. Through the process of justification and sanctification, we receive glorification. We typically think of glorification in terms of receiving perfected bodies while enjoying the presence of God in heaven, such as the new world that Noah walked into and that we're told about in the book of Revelation. However, I want us to focus on that purpose of those new bodies, that is to worship God in His presence. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God by not conforming to this world. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Noah went against the world of his time, living a righteous life and building something he did not understand because he trusted God. Through the turmoil, the tossing, he stayed faithful, drawing closer to God while waiting for the opportunity to worship God providing an offering that was pleasing to God. God glorified Noah so that Noah 
could glorify God. And God is doing the same for you and for me. The key takeaway here, God glorifies us so that we can glorify him. In conclusion, in the end, to be saved from our sins, we must recognize that we are in need of a Savior. Noah may not have understood what an ark was, but he could see his sinful nature and the sinful nature of the world around him and the need to be saved from what was coming. God promised to save Noah and his family because Noah trusted in God and was found righteous by God. God provided a way of salvation for his sins, from his sins. He was justified through the building of an ark. God then sanctified Noah and his family through the turmoil of life on the ark, drawing them closer to him with each passing moment, being prepared for God's special purpose in their life. And finally, God glorified Noah, which allowed Noah the opportunity to glorify God. And so as we close, if the music team wants to come up, I have just a couple of questions. Are you saved? If the Son of Man were to come back today, would you be abiding in God? Would you be like Noah and on the ark? Or would you be one of the rest of the world standing at the door going, let me in, let me in? It's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We are all sinners. None of us are righteous. No, not one. And what we deserve is death. If you are saved, are you living a life that is drawing you closer to Jesus Christ? Are you being sanctified? Are you fulfilling the purpose that God has for you in that sanctification? Are you taking the gospel, the good news of Christ, out into this world? If no, then you're not fulfilling the mission that God has for you, the purpose he has for you. And then finally, are you glorifying God because of what he has done in your life? Noah had been saved, he had been tossed and turned. But rather than turning his back on God, as soon as he got off the ark, he said, let me worship you. Thank you for what you've done in my life. And that's what I want to encourage each and every single one of us to do today. Stop and glorify God. He is glorifying us so we can turn that around and glorify him. As the music team closes in song here. If you aren't saved, come up here. Let one of us pray with you. Myself, one of the elders, a deacon. You are saved and you're like, I am not living my purpose in life. Come up here and rededicate yourself to God. And say, God, I am here for your purpose. To use me for, help me to be on mission. Help me to stop in all things that I am doing and glorify you and you only. It's hard. It's not easy. Our youth group saw that this past week in New Orleans. Sin is everywhere. Our world is in need of an ark. Our world is in need of people who are willing to draw closer to God every day, be sanctified, to serve God for his purpose, and that is to take the love of Jesus Christ out into that world and to tell them, about God's good news before the door closes. Heads bowed and your eyes closed. Lord, we just lift you up. We thank you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you for providing a safe place for us to be able to abide in you while you walk us through the storms of life. Lord, we thank you that at the end of that, we will be glorified. We will be in heaven with new bodies. That's not the focus. Lord, the focus is that way we can stop and worship you for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what we will get to do with you forever in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.
you guys can go ahead and stand as we get ready to close.
have nothing else fit for a king except for a heart singing high.